0: Thank you.
1: It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Monday, September the fourteenth, twenty twenty. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the Talking Mets Podcast dot com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, send me an email: mike silva at talkingmetspodcast dot com. No g, Mike Silva at dot Well. Slip sliding away is the title of this podcast. As after what was becoming a promising weekend up in Buffalo, and uh, on Friday night after an 18 run outburst by the Mets uh, has turned uh, or turned into a couple of disappointing losses, and really losses that are a synopsis of the season. And uh, I think it's fair to say, although the Mets are a couple of games out of the wild card, which really is taking the form of like the NBA eighth seed. the... And I'm a little dated because I always tell you guys, I really have, and a lot of that has to do with the Knicks. I've been kind of backing out of the NBA over the last year, year and a half. So sometimes my analysis might be dated. But it goes back to when you had that 40 or 41 win team, maybe 38 win team that would sneak into the eighth seed. And you're like, well, that's just first round warm, warm up for the number one seed, you know, whoever that may be in that conference or whatever. And this smells a little like it. Although a three game series in baseball. Uh, you know, it it's definitely something that uh, <laughs> very much like the NBA number one seed in a five game series. You lose a game, all of a sudden now it's a it's a problem. These are still professional players, and you don't want to get behind because uh, anybody could beat anybody on a given day, especially if you have a hot pitcher. But uh, with that said, uh, th- this was never a season where, uh, and 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 I know this was talked about, I believe on the uh, Shay Anything, the Andy Martino Brian Williams podcast, where. I felt that the Mets had to do anything other than make sure that they learned something about their team and I continue to say that and I think they have some very big decisions with a new ownership group coming in and it's going to be tricky and it's going to be important for them to understand what's real and what's not and we'll get into that as the month goes on who knows I mean two games is not a lot uh, the Mets don't have an easy schedule they have the Braves they have the 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 Rays they have the Phillies and then they wind up with the Nationals the last four games, who have been awful. Uh, no, you know, not that I think that they would really take any kind of uh, prize in repeating this year, but you still don't want to after a championship season go out like that. But it's just there's so much wacky stuff going on, and uh, you know, Miami might make the playoffs. And in the 60 game season, you just see that you just can't get anybody. And you see it really with Jeff McNeil and his offense, how he finally got on track. Sixty games is is just not enough to really, uh, with the habits formed by players, a sprint is just not what the, uh, the sport is all about. So, that's where we're at. Look, um, what's the state of the union of this team? We got a little bit to get into here. I want to talk about Amed Rosario, and I want to. I've been reading a book called Black Edge, which is about. Steve Cohen, and it's an FBI book, really, uh, about the insider trading. But I learned a little bit, especially in the early chapters, about Steve Cohen, so I wanted to share that with you guys as well. So we'll get to that in a bit. But uh, as far as the State of the Union, I think everybody, and I've said this before, can agree. Once Syndergaard and Stroman went down, this was a second division club or had the the makings of a good—like, no different than what you have out in Colorado with the Rockies. A lot of offense, no pitching. A team that could have some fun moments, uh, but can't sustain winning at any kind of uh, pace. The bullpen has been better. But the question I have is, even though the numbers have been better, do you really have high leverage relievers on this team? Do you trust Familia in a big spot? We all know that Dylan Batanzas hasn't been great. We all know how great Edwin Diaz's numbers look, but we also know how he can implode at any moment with the control, the command, the home run ball. Hasn't been good in safe situations. I think Jared Hughes is a nice workhorse, but uh, he's probably been overused. And uh, I do not look at him as a high-leverage reliever. And Justin Wilson hasn't had a good year, though. I think his bad outings uh, probably overshadow that I don't think he's somebody that I wouldn't trust in the, in a big spot in the late innings. Uh, but he hasn't had the same year that he had a year ago. Actually, the best reliever who has been a scrappy pickup has been Jason Shreve. Uh, striking out, uh, well over a batter per inning. Uh, he's been a great bridge for the team during those games where the starter's only been able to go a couple of innings. And, uh, and away you go. So you might, and I, I believe he's controllable next year, so you may have a piece for next year. But I still think, although the bullpen has improved, they have to ask themselves, who is my higher leverage relievers? They still haven't shown that they can uh, develop anybody out of their system to come into the bullpen and, and, and be a force. Maybe that's not fair because of what out of minor league season, we wouldn't uh, see that. Um, but I still look at the bullpen right now as something that it, it's not good enough. It's not locked down enough, in my opinion. I don't care what the numbers say that can make up for starters that uh, are going to go sometimes three or four innings. And if you look at the starting rotation right now, you have DeGrom. Lugo certainly is showing promise. I think ultimately he could slide in there as a pretty good number three. Uh, and then, uh, David Peterson right now, uh, you know, he's a young cost controlled and he's a guy that, uh, you know, he hasn't gone around, he won't go around the league for the most part a couple of times without video this year. And I think we're learning that with a lot of the players talking about the lack of video being a problem, which you would think aspects of that will be back. I'm sure, the players are going to make sure aspects of this, that'll be back. You got to go back to some old school methods that let's face it. They've not been trained in a long time to actually uh, observe, pay attention and, and learn the nuances of the game without technology. It's a, it's a big thing, but as those things come back, you know, who is David Peterson? You don't, you don't want to just make a decision over a short, you know, six, seven, eight starts, how many he's going to wind up getting this year, but he's, but he's been good. You know, he's been good. He's been able to go out there and give you every bit, the back in the rotation, competitive outing. He's got moxie. He tends to bend, not break. So, You know, you've got that out of him. And then, you know, obviously the guys that you brought in uh, on veteran deals like Waka and Porcello have not been good. I think Porcello over the long haul, uh, you know, will settle in and and you could be happy with him as a fifth starter. But in a lot of ways, he's expensive because he's a veteran. And he's going to have those addings where he's non-competitive against good offensive teams. So, you know, this rotation, and it's funny because over the last couple of years, you've had the 62 Mets invoked in aspects of the Mets. Mainly the bullpen. Mainly it's been the bullpen that they've been talked about in terms of the 62 Mets. You know, 62 Mets-level performance that, you know, just basically you would never think that you could... Even if you got a a 93 Mets performance at the bullpen, you would have probably made the playoffs in one, if not both of the seasons, 18 and 19, depending on how you look at it. Uh, Now you're getting 62 Mets-level performance out of the starting rotation. You take DeGrom out of the mix, I think... Uh, the ERA is over six, so you're really not the pieces. And this is again something that's been going on now for three or four years. The pieces aren't lining up. You get good offense, and then you don't get good bullpen, and then you get a good, better bullpen, and the starting pitching falls off. You had the bullpen this year, that last year that you have this year. Even though I don't, I still think they have the the issue with the high leverage reliever. You probably make the playoffs last year. You probably do. So that's where you're at. Uh, This is not a team that you should look at as a disappointment by not making the playoffs. This is a team that had some thunderbolts, some situations that happened uh, at the end of spring training during the pandemic with Syndergaard. And then with Strowman opting out for, you know, mysterious reasons, I think at the end, Uh, not really too mysterious. It was about his career and money and so be it. Uh, You know, that's, that's his right. Uh, It'll be interesting how he plays in going forward and what have you. Uh, But You know, right now, uh, just continue to look at this team, you know, and see who is a solution for next year and going forward. Because, uh, you know, I I really believe that this is still a team that has enough pieces, especially on the offensive side. I think they have some really good core offensive pieces where they should be competitive. They should not be just saying, hey, you know, there's nothing here, there's plenty here. They've got to get the pieces, all the pieces working uh, at an adequate level uh, going forward. They always have, it seems, one part. There was a period where the offense fell off the cliff. There was a period mainly where the bullpen fell off the cliff consistently, and now the starting rotation has fallen off the cliff. And that's something that happens to a lot of teams. I mean, that's not something that's um, you know just the Mets. Uh, you know, offensively, you know, you could you could pick a little bit at some things. You know, Alonzo has been awful this year, and I think Luis Rojas said it best. I think he he's chasing. I think his recognition of the strike zone and his patience that made him a a very good young hitter in 2019 has gone away. Now, I don't know if that's because of the lack of video. I don't know if that's because of the sophomore slump or maybe he's a little anxious. Um, But that's something that I I, I think he has to really take a step back and think about because right now, and I said this in prior podcasts, right now I think uh, Dom Smith is pushing him and uh, Dom Smith has shown And this is where decisions are going to be tough this offseason because no matter what Conforto does, no matter what uh, Dom Smith does, no matter what bad things happen to an Alonso or even Ahmed Rosario, who we'll talk about in a minute, this is a 60-game season. It's not even the All-Star break. I mean, think about if you evaluated last year's Mets and some of the players that uh, emerged, Rosario, one of them, just on the first half. You might make a completely different decision on a lot of guys. Every team, look at where teams are. I mean, basically you're evaluating teams through June 1st of a normal season, maybe June 15th, somewhere around there. And you just don't do that. Baseball, that's not how baseball is. That's not how these guys have been built. Uh, and you're talking hundreds of years, couple, you know, 150 years worth of, of history here that you can't just throw out going forward. This is not micro-baseball. I know that there's a lot of people who want it to be that way, mainly in the media. It's not micro-baseball, what have you. But I will say this, before we take a break and get to Rosario here, because I think that's a big conversation that I want to have. The Mets did a really, really good job with the first responder hats for 9-11, and I think it's important. I think especially now with what's been going on in the world and how some of our first responders are being clearly taken for granted, their lives are on the line, and, and, I'm, and, and I really believe... Listening to these guys. And you don't know what's in somebody. You, you could only speculate looking at them. That this was something the team really wanted to do. They took pride in it. And they were happy that they were able to do a small part in honoring these guys that are going out there. Doing their job. Some of these are really good jobs. Really good government jobs. City jobs. But in a lot of ways, I think right now, we're starting to take advantage of people who are playing an important role in society. And I think it was important for the Mets to come forward and do that. I know it still comes out that Joe Torrey's against it, and I know you have guys in the media. uh, You probably have seen the Post that now uh, are concerned about it because, you know, how do we rank tragedies now? You know, what if somebody wants to do a school shooting down in, you know, Florida or out in San Diego? Well, you know what? If that's important to that community, and at this point, if you're going to have Players Weekend with goofy uniforms or you're going to allow... Players to put uh, political statements on the field or teams to walk out—you've lost that. You've lost that completely. Yeah, maybe you had the point where you want to try to keep this about the team and the uniform and the marketing. I think nine eleven should never be lumped in with other tragedies because of what it, it was to this country and what it you know what it stood for. And I think the response of this country is something that uh, we may never see again—the unity that you see there. But anyway, uh, without going too deep into it, you can really tell the team wanted to do this. And the Mets have been trying to spearhead this a lot. I think a lot more so than the Yankees over the last few years. I know that it was thrown out there that maybe Jeff Wilpon had something to do with it. You know, when people had snide comments, like the guy, you know, like, don't, you know whatever you feel about the guy. Most of it's probably negative. Give the guy credit if he did. You know, sometimes not everybody's all bad. Remember that. Not everybody's all bad when it comes down to it. So I thought the Mets did a good job. If there was one positive from this week, and it's that. If there's one thing that kind of wiped away some of what I felt, the misguided negativity that they brought to the team with what happened a couple of weeks ago with the walkout, which I know I got some more emails about that, uh, despite the fact that they probably were trying to support their teammate, regardless of what their thoughts were about the political organization, I think this, to me, was a real... Positive check mark on 2020. The Mets did a great job. I know Pete became the spokesman for that. And uh, it seems simple, but like I was talking to someone in the business, it means a lot to some of these guys that not only put their uh, life on the line that day, but after and have suffering consequences from health, especially now where some of these jobs are looked at negatively, which is mind boggling. Uh, because the society without these guys is a much different society than we... Than, it's a society that not the society that we have, and it's certainly not a society you want to be a part of. Trust me on that. I think we could all agree. So, anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, I met Rosario on center field. Bad idea. Real bad idea. And I'll tell you why right after this. And Rosario clocks one deep left field. Back goes Gardner at the wall. It's out of here! Ahmed Rosario gives the Mets the win with a two-run homer. A walk-off two-run homer for Ahmed Rosario in the bottom of the seventh. And the Mets sweep the doubleheader from the Yankees as they win the nightcap 4-3. to three. All right, we're back, and the old saying goes: if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And I sometimes feel like both Mets Mets fans and the media don't read their history book because I'm I'm going to tell you their history book right now, and it's it's a history that's it's important to to understand. So so everybody's talking about the emergence of Andres Jimenez uh, and what he's done and how he could be and he has basically at this point taken the job away from. Ahmed Rosario at shortstop. And I I said this, I tweeted this out during the week when he hit the opposite field home run against the Orioles. If he could start hitting with power to the opposite field or any kind of power in general, um, watch out. That's a really good player. Now he's young, and again, like Peterson, hasn't gone around the league twice. You're really, it's going to take a while to learn about these guys. And that's why you have to be careful about what decisions you make. Good and bad. They're not really going, yeah, they're going around the league maybe within their division, so there's something there with that. You can make some evaluations on that, but this is a, a, you know, there's the interleague play, there's other divisions, there's, you know, different organizations that are going to expose you. Everybody steals from everybody else, no pun intended. So you really got to go around the entire league. People will find out as you have the breadth of of teams you play, something about you that you're going to have to adjust to. Pete Alonso's going through that. But if you're a Mets fan of any kind of age outside of maybe in the early 20s, uh, you know, uh, you remember some centerfield experiments. If you have any kind of connection to the late 80s Mets, uh, you remember centerfield experiments. So, you know, when I heard Rosario in centerfield, I thought of Juan Samuel right away. And you guys laugh, oh, what a disaster, Juan Samuel. Well, Juan Samuel was a very good player with the Phillies. He was a guy that had speed. He had power. Uh, he drove in over 100 runs. Uh, you know, he was a guy that if he had played League average center field, and even though I'm an up the middle defense guy, but if he had played league average center field, he would have given you the kind of power and speed numbers that I think Lenny Dykstra wound up giving the Phillies after they traded him, after he kind of, you know, reinvented himself, whatever, whichever way you want to say he reinvented himself over there. Uh, Samuel would have done that. I think that's what the Mets expected, and uh, he was a disaster, and I think part of that goes back to. When you start to focus on a very important, difficult position, you're the captain there in the outfield with a lot of activity, it's going to take away from your focus and your trade for what you do well, which is, at that point, it was speed and power and offense for Samwell. Now, you don't have the numbers like you have today with the batting average on ball and play. I'm sure they could figure that out and things like that. So I didn't really dive into any Samwell numbers, see was he as good of an hitter as we thought. But... For about a four year period, and he did start to show some warts before coming to the Mets, so it wasn't like he was traded at his peak. He was a good player, declined offensively, and he was an awful center fielder. Keith Miller, uh, a, probably a guy that was a utility player, they tried to put him in center. There were challenges. He put a lot of effort into that. Howard Johnson. Now, how offense Dolphins declined, he had some health issues. Uh, with his shoulder and some other things, so he was decli- he was probably going to decline anyway. Hojo was a guy who never really had a position, but they put him in the outfield, they put him in the corners, they put him in center. Struggled. Struggled a lot on that thing. I mean, you had guys like Pat Howell, 4A guys that excited Mets fans because they, when he came up, he could like, play a normal center field. Well, yeah, he's a center fielder. Hojo's not. We all know, and probably more of you who are younger remember Roger Sedanian. Now, Roger Sedanian was an outfielder, but he wasn't a center fielder. And as you move guys around, all those names I gave you, the things that they did well, they did less well because they were put in center field and they had to learn such a uh, an important position. Now, if you want to do what the Mets or what the fans want to do when it comes down to Ahmed Rosario, you have to do what the Braves did with Ronnie Gantt. Now, Ronnie Gantt played center field and was top 10 MVP for the Braves in 1991, their first year they won the pennant. But just a year and a half earlier, now he was a young player who had promise. He had hit uh, 19 home runs in 1988. You know, he had speed. But he was, you know... He basically was not a good infielder. He was playing second base. He was a butcher at second base. He was a guy that was considered for rookie of the year. So they sent him all the way back down to A-ball to learn the outfield. And he was an outfielder for the rest of his career. Not really a center fielder. They moved him to the corners after that. Uh, he had a very serious bike accident that almost ended his career after signing a big contract in the mid-'90s. But Ronnie Gant went back down to the minor leagues. He was not. It was not necessary for him offensively to go back down to the minor leagues. But he went down to the minor leagues to learn how to play center field. And that's what Ahmed Rosario is going to have to do if you want to put him in center field. And you don't have a minor league season right now. You don't know what 2021 is going to look like. There's still a lot of uncertainty. I'm sorry, inner squad or back-level fields in St. Lucie or whatever you want to do does not uh, make up for uh, center field time. And, And my question to everybody is, all right, you saw that one game out there in Kansas City last year and laughed, and he caught a fly ball. But what makes anybody think, other than the fact that he's fast and he hasn't really shown that he could harness his speed positively from a stolen base standpoint, what makes anybody think that he could play the position? You think you could just put a glove on him? It's the same mindset that you guys complain about under Wilpon ownership that you're really perpetuating, and it's perpetuating maybe more on Twitter, which is the minority of the opinion, but it's going to make its way out. It's making its way in some... Quarters of the media on the beat. Even if Ahmed Rosario performs offensively like he did in the second half, which was largely based on the premise that, yes, you know, he made a lot of contact, and when he made contact, uh, he he got hits, that old BABIP, you know, batting average on balls in play. If he develops some kind of patience, you're not expecting him to walk like Ricky Henderson or John Olerud, but if he develops some level of patience with the strike zone, he would be that much more effective as the. Batting average on balls in play as the uh, contact normalized a bit, and that didn't happen. I mean, the contact rate, you know, obviously uh, went down uh, like it would, and uh, you know, he just did not. I mean, he doesn't walk. He doesn't really swings at everything. Uh, you know, he's had a big moment this year with the game winning walk off home run at Yankee Stadium, but you know, other than that, he's regressed a lot, and we've seen that with Rosario. We've seen a lot more of the first half Rosario. Than the second half Rosario. So he's not even developed as an offensive player yet. He's still working on that. 60 game season, I'll keep repeating it. Maybe that's part of what we won't see. Maybe we would see Rosario over the course of 162 games, everything kind of normalized to something that would intrigue us. But okay, let's just for argument's sake say, you know what? He can learn center field and he could do it in the offseason and he could do it during a pandemic and he could do it with the uncertainty of modern league baseball all those things I don't think are even remotely realistic but let's just play the argument in the devil's advocate is he offensively because now you're gonna ask him to learn this position he's gonna be focused on that is he has he arrived offensively for any of that stuff to happen now I'm, I'm not I don't know about his work ethic I'm not saying it's good it's bad or it's indifferent but that's a lot of work ethic that's a lot of mental approach to the game. That you have to ask him to do. So he's the second half Rosario offensively, more like that than the Rosario we've seen in the 60 game season and the first half of last year. Well, now you got yourself Victor Robles, Lorenzo Kane. Lorenzo Kane's a really good center fielder. Uh, You know, I think Robles is a pretty decent center fielder from what I've seen. Is he ever going to be? Is he going to be Lorenzo Kane? Now you could say, well, Robin Yount turned himself. And I remember having this conversation in other ways. Yeah, Robin Yount. Hall of Famer turned himself to an outfielder. Um, you know, but but that's an exception, not the rule. I think for you to bet on Rosario being Robin Yount, when Robin Yount was already a great offensive player, the guy who got 3,000 hits, I think that's a, a foolish way of going about it. And and, he already, and you have Brandon Nimmo, and everybody hates Brandon Nimmo in center because Brandon Nimmo's not sexy offensive player. And he can be uh, frustrating at times in center field. But you're willing to put Rosario in center when you're not happy with Nimmo. Because if he gives you Brandon Nimo level defense, then that's a win on the defensive side. He won't give you, because he's never done it, the kind of offense that Nimmo is going to give you. He's not going to get on base like Nimmo. He's not going to give you the power that Nimmo gives He's not going to r- create runs like Nimmo. So I'm just completely confused here why any of this is a good idea. And it's going to come up again. And we're going to probably have to talk about it again. Now... My thing is this, Andres Jimenez has shown you that although the Mets have some really good core offensive players, they have some duplication. It reminds me a little bit how the Knicks under with Amari Stottlemyre and Tyson Chandler had, sometimes it was a clumsy fit. They had good players, but they had duplication. And it held them back in certain areas. Now, does that hold the Mets back? Well, we'll see, because now you got Alonzo, J.D. Davis, Dom Smith, and a lot of times you look at them and you're like, well, Dom could play, he's the most versatile that could be passable when it comes to playing the outfield. The other guys read more like a DH, although JD's done a decent job at third. So, where do these guys fit when it comes down to the Mets' offense? You want to be able to have more two-way players. You want to be able to have guys that could could pick it a little bit. Luis and Jimenez—they won a game for the Mets earlier this year with their defense in Washington. Normally, I would say, "Hey, Jimenez and Rosario can coexist together." Maybe you know you still got to see what you got there. You still need someone that could plug in of him and his flops. You know, or else you have to go out and get yourself a veteran uh shortstop. And you would, you know, have him play second base and Canoka DH. I'm assuming the DH will still be in the National League. But now with Alonzo and Smith creating the complications, and I really think Dom could play the outfield, but I think he's better at first base. You almost have to keep that DH spot open for Alonzo now. That's where this is going with him, based on what you see this year. In a small sample size, this is what you see: is that maybe Pete's more of a DH type. Now, if there's no DH in the National League, now you got a bigger problem. But you know that's a that's a whole conversation for another day. So the whole Cano at at second base into the DH spot that goes away. So you may have to make this choice sooner rather than later. Now, in a small sample size, Jimenez has shown that he could pick it. Yes, he's made some big errors, but nothing that you wouldn't expect from a rookie. That those Yankees errors were awful. That was probably a Waterloo bad day for him. Um, and 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 he's decent enough offensively, where he's not going to be Troy Tulowitzki in his prime. Uh, he's not going to be Javier Baez uh, offensively, but he's going to be a decent offensive player. He's got tremendous speed, something that. I think is a huge asset in a league that doesn't really value it anymore. Look at Trey Turner, and how he his speed could change games, and how hard it is to uh, you know keep the Nats off the board when he gets on base. That could be Jimenez, and, and and to me, there's a huge value there. Plus, defense at, at key positions up the middle, namely shortstop. So you do have a decision to make. I wouldn't just throw Rosario away. Uh, I think you might have to go to camp with both of them. And maybe Rosario, hey, it's okay for a young player to ride the bench a little bit. There's this, and I said this before, there's this big thing. Oh, my God, they've got to play every day. Well, you know what? Looking through the history of baseball, there's a lot of guys who came up and didn't play. Eric Davis didn't play every day when he came up with the Reds. There's a lot of guys. Back in the 80s, go back and look. Some of these guys spent two, three years shuttling and going up and down on the bench. Now, you might say it wasn't good for them, but, but... You know what? They learned at the big league level. You're ready to, you know, you got to get ready and prepare. You're still probably going to have some COVID rules next year. So there's going to be guys that are going to be going on the COVID DL. I don't think that's going to change in the next six months with the way that the the world is. So you're going to need a lot of depth. And Rosario would be that good depth. And you know what? He's probably going to get some playing time against lefties. He's going to have to learn to win a position. They're going to have to come to camp, those two kids. And they're going to have to try to win that position. And whoever wins it, God bless the other guy either. You know, Jimenez can go back down to the minors. That's not really an option for Rosario. Or the bench. And that's okay. I know there were some people clutching their pearls and holding their breath. But you know what? That's life. You lose a position. You didn't earn it. You go to the bench. Just to say, well, now he's got to go learn center field. What do you know? He can't play it. What about his process, his ability to evolve as a hitter, makes you think he's good enough to make that transition at any acceptable rate? For people, the same people who complain about Brandon Nimmo in the outfield, they want to put a med Rosario in center field. It's absurd. It's Stratomatic baseball at its worst. It's fantasy baseball at its worst. It's talk rate. And it looks great for the show. We'll put 15 minutes of content onto the show, and we'll talk about it again. But there is nothing. And if you don't learn from history, go read up. If you don't know about Juan Samuel, go read up about him. You don't know about Roger Cedanio, go read up on him. You don't know. Now, that's not as, as applicable as Samuel and Hojo and Keith Miller. Go read up on Ronnie Gantt. Now, Ronnie Gant wound up playing center field. We don't have advanced metrics from the 1991 season. I don't remember him being bad. But, you know, he was an impact hitter. He's a 30-home run, 30-stolen base guy. That's not Ahmed Rosario. That's just not. You know, he certainly has potential to be a very impactful hitter at shortstop. His numbers at shortstop are far more valuable than they are in the outfield. And now that you have a guy who has plus defense and plus, probably offensively a little more diversified, and maybe when you look at the whole pie together, not just certain numbers, he's a better offensive player. Well, to me, the choice is pretty easy, and it's, you know, let's see what you could get out there and trade that guy, and maybe you'll be pained by it. But maybe you trade that guy, and uh, and you upgrade. uh, Maybe he brings you your center fielder. Who knows if you really don't want Nimmo out there. So I think there's some decisions to make. I think Nimmo in center field doesn't bother me especially because I think his offense over the long haul will outweigh any kind of downgrade you have. Um, because then, you know, the next thing is you get a Mariznick type, and that's nice. He's a really good center fielder, but offensively, that's a more complementary offensive player. I think uh, Nimmo's a core offensive player, and it'd be foolish to give up on him. You know, if you want to move him to the corners, that's a separate situation. So anyway, a Razar on center field, bad idea. Uh, we're going to have to talk about it because, again, this is going to be something that's going to, be uh, bandied about. And if the front office uh, uh, does this, they better make sure they know that they have a guy that can learn it. They better make sure. They can't just play stratomatic analytical games here. You need to know what's in that noggin if you're going to put someone in center field. And from afar, you don't look like the guy that could do it. And most people can't. That's not a knock 100%. It's a very difficult thing. Very difficult thing. You're asking a lot. At the big league level, are you going to send him back down? Is he going to go back to low A? I don't think so. I don't think he's going to do. Plus, this, the controllability situation is different than during the uh, the 80s with Gant and the Braves and whatnot. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, Steve Cohen looks like he's going to be the owner. So we'll probably get news uh, very shortly this week, and he'll probably be approved in November. What does that mean? Some early things I learned about Steve Cohen reading a book called Black Edge. We'll be back with that and more right after this. Doc Gooden's first two years in the big leagues were some of the best in the history of baseball. How did that impact him going forward? He discussed this with me on the Talking Mets podcast.
0: You know, normally, you have those type of years, maybe like year five, year six, uh, once you get like 20, 29 years old. Mine happened in 1920, my first two years. I remember a game in 86 where I pitched a shutout, but I only had three uh, strikeouts. The first question was, what happened? You only had three strikeouts. And, you know, you will say the political correct words. You say, oh, I'm not worried about that. I just want to win. It's for the team. But inside... Now, that hit a nerve where you feel like, my next start, I got to pitch nine innings, I got to pitch a shutout, I got to get 10 strikeouts. Um, and I, I lost some fun that I was having in-game because of that. Because of expectations, where it became like the media expectation the fan expectation. Then it became my expectations. where I felt that anything I did, like I couldn't match the 85 no matter what I did. But in my mind, if I didn't get the 10 strikeouts or whatever, it wasn't the same. It wasn't just a win. And I wouldn't have as much fun as I should have had. And that's one of the things I regret looking back at my career now, where I allowed things what you know, whether it's the media, the fans, or myself at that point getting into my own head, allowing that me to lose the fun. Because it should be a privilege playing Major League Baseball and you still winning games, you still pitch it great. Obviously it's not eighty five, but unfortunately I had my career year, my second year, or you say my first year, and you're never gonna match that again.
1: Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. You know, the funny thing about everybody is that they're all happy that the Wolf ponds are out as owners. And, and look, it's it's really become a time where we all know it's time to go. It took a pandemic. It's time to go. The, 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 the aura, the energy, you want to talk about the non-financial reasons, it's going to be very hard for this team to move forward with the way that, A, they run things financially, which is very day-to-day, you know, Rob Peter to pay Paul. And also, I think the negativity that comes with the association of their name uh, makes it very difficult as a team for them to move forward. But nobody really knows who Steve Cohen is going to be as an owner. And we really won't know until he gets here. We do know he's got a deep... Deep pocketbook, and that's a good thing, and that's in and of itself is what this team needs. But there's a lot of people saying a lot of things about well, when Steve Cohen comes in, he's gonna fire Brody from Wagon and he's gonna get this guy. Get you have no idea. First of all, he's not gonna be really in until November, but I'm sure and, and he's been involved. From what I understood, he was around and involved last winter when before things fell apart. Now, how true that is and how involved, I don't know. But with that said, the first take I would say is um As much as everyone's making fun of A-Rod and there was rumors about him suing and all this other stuff, you got to give the guy and Jennifer, uh, him and uh, J-Lo, Jennifer Lopez, I'm just, you know, Rodriguez, Lopez, all kind of jambles together there, unfortunately, Um, credit for putting themselves out there. You know, they don't need this. You think a, a a millionaire singer who could be doing so many other things on page six needs to be involved in getting their hands dirty with the Mets and baseball? And obviously, there's a lot of money be made around the stadium. I've said that before. And listen to us criticize. And she's right. It would be a, a great win in this era of diversity where she could come in and be the control person. She's famous. She certainly could get, bring cachet from a page six aspect. Some of that Mets fans may not like because it's a working class kind of brand, but it would take the franchise to new levels. I think what's intriguing about that group, before we get to Cohen, is they do have some strong business experience from marketing. And I think that as you read their proposal a little more publicly, I think it was the New York Post, it was more intriguing than I initially thought. The problem is with that whole situation, it's a risk that this team can't take at this point in their history. They just can't. 20 years ago, they could. 10 years ago, they could. Now, as you get further and further entrenched into a different sports world, relevancy and fighting for the consumer dollar is going to be important. I don't know if kids are just going to necessarily become Mets fans because their dad is. You hope that that still continues. You need to provide a good team and a positive image and it's hard with a media that doesn't really want to portray any kind of positivity on anything because that's not what they believe sells. So you're fighting the media all the time, and you're going continue to fight the media. Um, you're fighting yourselves, the self-inflicted wounds that they've done over the last 20, 25 years, and you're fighting against other choices. So as much as that would be intriguing, winning baseball is what's going to bring people back and sustain winning and being sus- sustained in the papers for the right reasons – and winning in baseball is the right reasons, that will bring people back, and that will move the team forward. And I just don't know if a group of individuals with a lot of money individually and a lot of money more than that together, it's like a a committee approach. It usually leads to disaster and problems, and the Mets can't afford that. Ten years ago, maybe even five years ago, I'd say, ah, let's do it, let's try something different here. You just can't do it now. But who is Steve Cohen, a very wealthy guy with a sketchy background when it came down to... Insider tradings. I know that uh, if you watch Billions on Showtime, you probably get a good feel of some of his story. There's a lot of similarities to that character. I know they based it on him a little bit. Uh, So that's something that you can do if you really want to watch that. There's a lot of drama to that. So it's not really apples to apples. But if you want to get a feel of the kind of guy he is. But... What I've learned about Steve Cohen is a guy who grew up on Long Island and he's the guy that went to an Ivy League school. He went to the Wharton School of Business, but he wasn't like the guys with money who, as they grow, they have that birthright almost to go to these schools and they have those connections. And in some ways, they don't have the same chip on their shoulder, the same edge that those who work their way from, I wouldn't say nothing. He was a middle-class guy growing up in Great Neck, Long Island. But that extra 20% that extra little grit that you want to bring up to get the job done. You know, Cohen has a big chip on his shoulder because you're not looked the same way. When you're not from the club, you're not looked the same way. you got to barge yourself in. And he's doing the same thing here as an owner in Major League Baseball. Uh, He's pretty much barging in, I'm sure, from a standpoint of him having money and putting the Mets on the map that's not going to sit well with certain small market and big market teams. So in a similar way to how he had to barge in and and kind of push some of the rich kids out of the way as a a businessman, he's gonna have to do that as an owner. He's gonna have that little he's gonna take that axe to grind and he's gotta do that. Now, that could be negative energy that's channeled, but hopefully channels that well. Remember how he started. He was a trader, which is sometimes a distinction without a difference to gambling. You're not gonna see a guy come in here and put a boring five year plan apart. I know that that's what the blogs and some of the other, you know, that would be their dreams. So they could sit around and talk about prospects for five years and, and win penance, virtual penance of, of prospect lists. That's not what this guy's about. He's not spending three, you know, $2.5 billion putting his name on something. A guy who has been successful in another industry to sit back, lose 100 games and wait for a Sports Illustrated article a decade from now. It's not going to do that. So if that's what you got in your mind, that's not happening. He was self-made. Remember that. So there's a lot of those principles, that grind, that uh, that never say die, that, that push going forward to, 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 to win at any cost, you're seeing that with the bidding. Now, one thing that plays into this, and, and I think we, you'll see some of the changes, I think aesthetically you'll see some of the changes – And they tell a story in the book early on about how he bought, when he became very wealthy, he bought a mansion up in Connecticut and basically raised and rebuilt it. And I know that's what people are saying. Well, that's what he's going to do with the Mets. I think a lot of what, you will feel that he's in charge. But I think a lot of that will be things in marketing, around the stadium, the way the team is promoting itself, a mindset. I've said, my biggest issue with the ownership group is I feel that the mindset and the alpha attitude And the commitment to excellence has to start with them. It's always started from in the dugout on up. It's never been up, down. I think up, down, up from the top, down is where excellence starts. I think Fred is a really nice guy, but he's a guy that yearns for the days where he takes his brown paper bag with his lunch and he goes and sits in the bleachers at Ebbets Field. And that's a time long gone in baseball. And I think Jeff wants to win, but I think Jeff doesn't really know how to win. I think Jeff doesn't really know. He wants excellence and he wants to demand excellence. But there's a lot of nuance to that that I'm not sure Jeff knows. This guy was an innovator within his field. He was one of those early hedge fund guys. When hedge funds were not this glamorous job that's got a series on Showtime. His firm evolved. You know, He started to bring people in. Uh, he wanted to be more than just traders as that firm SAC evolved. The SAC's not around anymore. Um Because of the insider trading. But he wanted people to be subject matter experts. Forget about the legal, illegal, all that. There's still a lot of learnings from that. Um, There's a lot of thought that he's going to upset the apple cart year one in the front office. I don't see that happening. I really don't. I don't think new owner, old owner, anybody who blows things up based on this stupid season is business malpractice. It really is. Because you have to look at this holistically, you have to look at what's going on from a minor league and player development, the focus and the long-term strategy and plan. If I'm Steve Cohen, I go in and say, hey Brody, you gotta lay it on me man, What's what are, where are we going with this team? Because the idea that the media puts out there that it's a year by year, you know, the, the plan is not him talking about bringing back Jake Marisnyk, the plan is how they're going to build sustainable winning going forward, which Brody has talked about, which I know that there's a plan out there. You're not going to know what 100%. I'm not going to know what 100%, nor should we. I know that that's the, you know, what you guys want, but it's there. I don't think it's there. Now, you know, obviously you have an owner now that wants to win now and you have to placate that. So even though you have this plan, there's always pivots that you have to make going forward in order to pacify other stakeholders. And honestly, a five-year rebuild is not something that I'm in favor of. There's no reason for it. Not with the kind of money that this guy has coming in. Not the market. Not with the offensive core of players. And they still have some really good pitchers that, you know, are going to be back if you want them back for free agency as well as if they come back from from injury like Noah Syndergaard. So that's what you're going to get early on. That's what I've read about him. Don't, you know, it's not more than the money. Read about who he is as a person. And I think it'll be important for us to see who we could get on and talk about uh this a little bit to learn from people who may know him a little bit more but you never know just because he did certain things back in the 90s late 90s mid 90s now you know he's also a different person he's been through different things so you know i could be wrong but um you know that does not mean that uh, everything he did before he'll do going forward it also doesn't mean because you want him to be a certain way that he will nobody knows you could speculate nobody knows and one last thing because I think this is important, you know. We talk about uh, J Lo being the first Latina running a team. Cone's wife is of Puerto Rican descent, and she is been has been, from what I read, very involved with the firm. You know, it's a second wife, very involved. You read about her. You could, uh, you know, go online. Uh, involved in philanthropy. I think she'll be in play when it comes to the community and the New York Mets. So don't don't discount that. That's something to look into. Again, we're just taking what they've done in the past and extrapolating. But like I said with a meta-rosario, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to either make the wrong move. Well, you're doomed to repeat it negatively a lot of the times. But you also aren't doing the right analysis. You're not being honest about what is really to come. You're trying to basically predict things that you want to happen, not things that will happen. And that's, we don't do that over here on this program. So anyway, let's take a quick break. We're going to wrap up. Want to address a couple of emails I got. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. and enjoy the rest of the show. Alright, final thoughts. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to today's podcast. But I wanted to give a shout out to our friend Howard. Now Howard McDowell, Howard who listens to the podcast. Who sent me a very thoughtful, uh, long email about uh, Tom Seaver and our Tom Seaver podcast. I also let me make sure I get everybody who uh, who reached out to me about the Howard. I want to talk about Howard's comment for a minute, but um, Andy Chapo on Twitter at SidFinch021 actually made a great point. I saw that after that. I, I kept saying that Zachary was a lefty. Pat Zachary was a righty. He was a young pitcher who was in uh, pitched in the postseason and a, a rookie of the year. Uh, so you know, to me that there's a big miss on my part. And I always get Zachary as a lefty versus righty messed up, but. Um, you know, it doesn't really change the way I look at the haul for the deal. And I think that's the real takeaway that I've been, you know, I've gotten the feedback feedback about is that, hey, you talk about this haul. And I want to be clear, when you look at it after the fact, the hall's not good. It was a bad trade. There's no doubt about it. And I understand what a guy like Howard is saying is that I didn't really – Talk as much about what Seaver meant because of 1969 because I wasn't around and maybe 1969 and, and what it was to everybody as a young fan or a middle-aged fan, whatever, means so much that that's where 77 and the negativity. Yes, I didn't get into Dick Young and some of the negativity that the media played into that. And We usually talk a lot about the media. Uh, there was so many ways you could go. I, I really wanted to keep it more to about what Seaver meant for the fans because that's where I wanted to go. I try to make it more positive. I think, and these are all fair things, and maybe these are things that we talk more about as we get into the offseason and we have a different type of time on our hands depending on how the league is and if there's any other league shutdowns and things like that, but um, I think Howard makes a great point, is that, yes, I focused on the Hall. The Hall wasn't good. If you take, you know, he did a great job breaking down the war and all that other stuff. I think from a mechanic standpoint and from a, a projection standpoint, how we look at baseball today. A couple outfielders with speed and power, especially Henderson who had an on-base average. A young pitcher that pitched in the World Series and has promise in Zachary. And then uh, Doug Flynn's a a fill-in. And I saw some people say, well, it's four quarters for a dollar. Yeah, that's what it turned out to be. But if Steve Henderson turns into an all-star and Pat Zachary uh, turns into a number two, uh, let's say. He's never going to be Seaver. That's the top ten pitchers all time. And Dan Norman is a useful everyday outfielder. It's for rebuilding team on a guy that was, even though he was still very good on the backside of his career. Let's face it, pre seventy, you know, before seventy seven Seaver and after seventy seven Seaver, those are different pitchers. So I think that was the point. But I can see the point of view in in my uh, uh, you know analysis that basically this was a bad trade. It was four quarters on the dollar and. I could see where you guys thought I diminished the importance of Seaver by the way I went about it. But I also was very honest and said, hey, I didn't watch the guy. I didn't see the guy play. So for me, I'm trying to do a podcast where guys like Greg Prince are giving me the color commentary because they were there. And I'm trying to take it from, okay, these are some things that the thoughts that I have looking at Seaver on paper. So great comment by Howard. I want to give him credit. I don't like to give out people's last names. That's not important. That's not, uh, uh, right on a podcast, but Howard, you know who you are. If you're still listening to the podcast, good commentary, and I appreciate it. Um, and and continue to reach out to me and hopefully listen and whatnot. Of course, I want to thank Greg Prince and 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 Rich Mancuso and the guys that uh, you know participated into uh, those things. Also, want to reach out uh, and say thank you to Randy for some great comments. Randy, uh, you, know, you know who you are. We had some good spirited back and forth. Tyler, great comments, sending me over. Over the holiday weekend, I'm catching up on some things right now, and uh, of course, uh, Sixto uh, down south, down in Florida, Sixto, Sixto do we, you know gr- really good, really good information. And uh, Jonathan uh, sent me a great uh, piece. I, I'm trying to give everybody, and you guys know who have you've sent out some emails, uh, some really good information about his feelings for Dom Smith and my thoughts on Dom Smith and the and the protest and things like that. So, I've gotten a tremendous amount of feedback. There was some that really stood out and I wanted to thank those for uh, for reaching out and, and taking the time to listen and taking the time to send an email. I do appreciate it. Uh, that means more than you think. Whether you agree, disagree, whether you're going to listen again or not, uh, I definitely appreciate the fact that you felt it, uh, emboldened enough and passionate enough to reach out about this podcast. It, it's, definitely, uh, it's definitely appreciated, and it's the point of it. It's not the point of you to be an acolyte. The point is, I always say, for me to put information out there give you mental bubble gum for an hour and maybe give you something to think about. And then you form your opinion and you form your own enjoyment of watching the team from what I give. I'm that bridge. That's all I'm trying to be is a bridge. I'm trying to bridge both sides. I'm not trying to be in one world or the other. That's never, uh, it's never been who I am. Not interested in being a beat writer. i tell you that right now. I also don't think I could just be a fan anymore because I've been on the other side. So that's where I think the value of this podcast comes. I think it makes my enjoyment of watching the team much better, even in down years, and I hope it does the same for you. So anyway, we're out of time. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to send me a note, like some of the guys that I just mentioned, send me a note at Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at... Podcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody.